The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Family Matters with your host, Dr. Virginia Collin. In this program, we will explore some of the challenges families face and the solutions they create in today's world, where marriage, parenting, and family forms are not what they once were. Now, here is Dr. Virginia Collin. Welcome to Family Matters. I'm Virginia Collin, and today I will be talking with Forrest Mostyn, better known as Woody who is one of the founders of the profession of family mediation. I had the privilege and the pleasure of meeting Woody at the 2014 conference of the Academy of Professional Family Mediators. He's an amazing person. He's been a lawyer and a mediator for a very long time. You can learn a lot about him by visiting his website, www.mostonmediation.com. Woody has written a large number of articles and even quite a number of books about mediation, about collaborative law, about unbundling legal services, a variety of topics related to family law and sometimes other kinds of law. And... I guess I will start, Woody, by asking you to tell me just a little of your history. You know, when did you start as an attorney? When did you start moving into the field of mediation? Why did you make that change? How did you make that change? Um, do we have several days or just an hour? I'm sorry, only an hour. Okay, well... Can I start a little earlier, maybe? Sure. Um, I have the privilege of uh, studying in in England, um, and um, between law school, between college and law school, and I had the um, fortune of seeing social services as rights and not as privileges, and one of the uh, takeaways I had from that year was the societal um, uh, affirmation that people were entitled to have a, a, a say over their own lives and to get help, uh, access to help in a rather affordable um, and convenient way, uh, whether it be housing, food, health services, um, or uh, legal services. And so I was very struck by that. And when I went to law school, I went with the, uh, the vision of not necessarily uh, being first in my class or having to write for a law review or um, uh, go get a job with a big firm, but to to help people 
in a better way. And so that was really been my uh, overriding value uh, since I uh, started my training. And then I had a great fortune uh, happen to me, um, which did not look like it at the time. And Virginia, how often is that true, right? Um, yeah, that happens. It looks, it looks like a tragedy and it ends up to be an opportunity. Um, on May 5th, 1970, if any of, any of the listeners remember, that was the day after Kent State and the riots um, of, um, that occurred on college campuses everywhere. And uh, I was a quiet law student studying for uh, um, an exam, and I heard helicopters and shouting outside. And I walked out, and there I saw uh, mayhem, uh, an army of students um, uh, that uh, uh, had such terrible weapons as books and uh, lunch uh, boxes and uh, entire Metro squad of the um, L.A. Police Department. Uh, some of the students then started to throw some rocks, and before you knew it, there was a full-scale riot. Um, I, for the first time in law school, found a chance to help people. I, you know, I just was in the first year. And while helping some of the students get uh, lawyers and bail and that type of thing. By the way, I bet you hadn't heard any of this before, have you? No, this is um, all new to me. Uh, uh, I met a, uh, uh, a a young lawyer who was volunteering. This was not his first rodeo. He had had other, law, other schools where he'd helped uh, bail people out. His name was Steve Myers, and Steve um, uh, was one of the most brilliant men I had ever known. And he and I, out of that crisis, became friends and began dreaming together. He was about four years older than I was. Um, and over the next two years, we dreamed about a, a different kind of law office, a law office that would be open to the public um, in places other than lawyer ghettos at times when people can c- come from work, at prices that people could afford, and um, we dreamed up something called the legal clinic. And he then had a law school classmate named Len Jacoby, and you may have heard of the firm Jacoby and Myers. Um, that was um, my first, my first uh, job out of law school, and it was an opportunity to actually help people. Um, I could tell you a lot more about that, but uh, that's a little off-topic um, uh, from the, the, the center of peacemaking that we're talking about here. That's true. Let's, let's get a little more honed in on family mediation and other peacemaking services. What would you like to say about that? Well, um, uh, after being at Jacoby and Myers, I uh, um, had an academic career in which I was uh, teaching law school. And I frankly read about mediation. I, I wasn't trained in it. And it had such a, um, an attraction for me. 
because it was the ability for people to get help and stay in control of their own lives, to be empowered, and for the professionals not to have to have all the answers, but to ask the right questions to help others learn. In fact, it was more like being a teacher than being an advocate. And so I um, uh, wanted to do that. So after uh, leaving teaching and working for the Federal Trade Commission, I opened up a little practice um, in uh, a uh, part of Los Angeles. On one side was a pet store and the other side was a taco shop. And um, I had a walk-in um, law and mediation office. I wow. must tell you, I did a lot more law than mediation when I first started. And I made every mistake uh, in the book trying to get it going. Um, and it took many years before it was profitable. Um, but it has provided um, many, for me, a, a, a very rewarding and um, uh, generous career where my colleagues are often my best friends. Um, my clients have inspired me. I think it takes incredible courage to sit down at a table. Much, it's much easier to either throw tantrums or to withdraw. Those, those are the ways people normally handle conflict, right? Um, but to sit down with someone that you're not communicating with, that you don't like, you don't trust, and try and work something out so that you both have a chance to win, that takes courage. And um, I am in, in awe and admiration, I think, of every uh, person who's ever been around my mediation table. That's an amazing statement. And you're right, it does take a lot of courage for people to come into family mediation. Um, and just think about it. Everyone's scared. Um, some would say, in fact, I know you uh, are from Virginia, and one of your favorite sons is Professor Robert Emery uh, from the uh, University of Virginia. Um, he's one of my heroes. And he, um, he said when, when people are going through divorce, they're temporarily insane. Um, he doesn't understand how anyone can be so uh, rational and so uh, good uh, with someone that uh, they are having such difficulty with. Um, he even honestly said he didn't know if he could do it if he were going through a divorce. I think he's being a little hard on himself because I think he could. Um, but the fact is, people do it all the time, but it, it isn't easy. No one is ever born to be a client. They, we have to help them, help them be their very best, which is so different from the system uh, of uh, uh, the court system where um, it often requires or brings people down to their very worst level. Yeah, I have seen that. The court, just the nature of the adversarial system can bring out the worst in people. 
and increase how scared they feel, increase how angry they feel, increase how powerless they feel. It's not a great place for solving family problems. No. Um, I mean, you know, people don't go to the court. Um, you know, when they go out on their first date, they uh, they go to their values and their instincts and their attraction and um, their, their uh, and this is something you could probably help us with more than I can, their tapes that they learn from their parents and their grandparents about what marriage and, and uh, intimacy and relationships are, but they make their own choices for good or for ill. Mm-hmm. And as they um, begin a life and have children and go through the challenges of parenthood and try and, and acquire some security and, and assets that will help them as they grow older, these are life lessons, but they, they, they didn't ask the courts for them. They didn't ask the law. And then the relationship, for whatever reason, goes sour. And all of a sudden, the law and lawyers and courthouses subsume individual empowerment. Um, people who would go out for a Big Mac with their kids on a Sunday. Um, one of those parents may be um, on the other end of a court order or a court hearing uh, saying that they, you know, they feed their children junk food. Um, uh, a parent who takes a child to a, to, uh, um, uh, a public swimming pool and gets undressed and all of a sudden, you know, and perhaps the child sees the genitalia. I'm not, I'm not encouraging that, but I'm saying it's, it's not the, the world's worst thing in the world. And all of a sudden, that child, that, that parent can be accused of being a, um, a molester or, or, or someone who's, who's subjecting a child to uh, child abuse. Um, people's privacy becomes impinged. Their sense of parenthood becomes controlled by outside people. The money and the property that they've worked for all of a sudden become subject to laws that are often very um, arbitrary. Um, can I tell a little story about arbitrariness of the law? I love stories. Okay. Well, this one happens to be true makes it even better. Um, let's go back to January 1, 1984 in Law and California time zone, all right? And we'll, we'll, uh, we'll look at two different times. One is 11.59 p.m., December 31, 1983. And then we'll look at uh, 12.01 on uh, January 1, 1984. <laughs> this is actually true. Uh, okay, that's two on, minutes. <laughs> on December 31, just before midnight, if two people who were married owned a home and one person put in separate property, if they got a divorce and the divorce happened before midnight, okay, <laughs> the person who had separate property would lose that separate property rights 
unless there was an agreement to preserve them. At one minute after 12, the legislature had changed the law to be effective at midnight, that if someone puts, that same person puts separate money into a home, that person is entitled to a reimbursement of that money without, income, without interest unless there's an agreement that he or she gives it up. That is how arbitrary it could be. That's and a pretty big change what, over the course of a couple of minutes. That's right. And neither of those parents, neither of those spouses knew anything about this law. They were out at a party, hopefully having a great time on New Year's Eve. But that law affects their, uh, could be hundreds of thousands of dollars or tens of thousands of dollars of their separate money, one way or the other. Mm -hmm. Now, if you sit down with these people, you might also find that they worked for a national company and they lived in uh, Colorado and they lived in Virginia and they lived in New York and they lived in California. And the laws all change, are all different on this issue. And it isn't serendipitous. They happened to be in California when they got their divorce. And so to say you've got to do what the law says is surrendering often logic and family agreements and values for an arbitrary system. And um, one of the things that uh, I don't do well with are arbitrary systems. And so I guess why I went into mediation. I like people to do what they want to do. Now, the hard thing about mediation is that people want to do different things. <laughs> they, they have different things they want to do. And so the art of mediation is to help people who want to do different things find a way to do a joint mutual thing based on their agreement that to do that is better than to fight for their individual thing. I see. So you worked really hard to be able to help people stay in control of their lives and be true to their own values, perhaps regardless of what the law recommended or would impose, uh, absent an agreement. And you were able to get to a point where you could earn a living doing this, right? Well, my banker says so, yes. And your wife, does she say so? She says so, although she, because of her courage and, my, and her support, uh, it may have gone the other way. Um, because I made choices of doing this work and uh, investing time and money and, and um, uh, uh, made some uh, errors. I was a little ahead of my time. So that we lost money many times. Um, we didn't make as much as we might have. But in the end, it's worked out very, very well. But we didn't know that at the beginning. I, I just followed my heart. Um, I couldn't do it any other way. And um, when, when young people are, are thinking of a career, um, uh, you know, they often come, uh, come to me for, uh, for 
for advice because that's what happens when your hair gets a little gray. Um, you know, smarter, but uh, uh, you're grayer, so they think that maybe you've been through um, a few ruts in the road. So, uh, you know, they say, well, I have this choice and I have that choice and I can work for this person and I can sell this product. And I always, always respond the same way. What does your heart say? Your head can talk you into anything. But if you have a real um, passion for a particular kind of life and, and, and work, um, uh, my, um, my invariable advice is follow it. Because if you stay with it, it's going to work out okay. Okay, we need to go to break now, and I will be back with Woody Mostyn in just a moment. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Are you struggling with emotional, financial, and legal stress related to divorce? The Guide to Low-Cost Divorce in Virginia by Virginia Collin and Rebecca Martin teaches how to handle these processes in any state with special attention to Virginia's laws. This book can help you take care of yourself, get free legal advice, develop a good co-parenting plan, keep expenses down, and arrange a do-it-yourself divorce. The Guide to Low-Cost Divorce in Virginia is available from Amazon for just $4.99. Most adults are able to make good decisions about how their families can move forward. They do not need to rely on courts to make such decisions, especially in cases of divorce. Far too many people suffer unnecessary anguish because they do not know what family mediators can do. We help people discuss problems constructively In a private, confidential setting, we help them stop fighting and stay out of court. To learn more about mediation and other family matters, visit ColinFamilyMediationGroup.com. Colin has one L and no S. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. listening to Family Matters. To reach Dr. Virginia Collin or today's guest, please call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to radio show at collinfamilymediationgroup.com. Now, back to Family Matters. Welcome back to Family Matters. This is Virginia Collin. I'm your host. And today I'm talking with Woody Mostyn, formerly Forrest Mostyn, but everybody calls him Woody. We're talking about the profession of family mediation, how that profession came into being, why it is so important that these services are available, and why it's important that people can earn a living in this profession. So I'm going to invite you, Woody, just to start in on that anywhere you want to. 
Well, I'll go back to my original uh, discussion about England and talk about um, how mediation and what legal services are paid for there and contrast it with here. Um, there, and it's, and it's no longer true, the government gave, it was like a Medicare system. So people who needed legal services and sometimes mediation would get a, a voucher. It's called, it was called a green form. And they could go see a lawyer or a mediator. And, and let's say the, uh, the lawyer's uh, fee was $100 an hour. Um, and if the person's income was sort of on um, uh, uh, middle income, maybe they would get a $50 subsidy. So it was only a, the copay was only $50, not 100 The lawyer got paid 100 but 50 was from the government. We don't have that here. And in fact, I don't see it happening in my lifetime or my children's lifetime. Um, every person who is in the private sector of mediation has to be able to be financially self-sustaining through her or his own work. There are no government subsidies or grants uh, or help for those, for those people. Now, that poses a major problem. It really sounds like every mediator is in a small business for herself or himself. On the other hand, the, the qualities of a business entrepreneur are very different from the qualities of someone who is a calm, reflective, uh, quiet uh, listener and, and problem solver and peacemaker. So the people who need to earn the money most are often least prepared and trained to do it. And in fact, um, in most mediation training classes, there's virtually nothing said about how do you get clients, how do you make a living, how do you manage an effective and um, uh, competent practice. So as I started my journey in this very uh, uh, challenging area uh, in 1979, I had a lot of space at my table. <laughs> it wasn't overcrowded at all. And I wanted to mediate. I liked my table, but I wanted it filled with people who had, a, had conflict and thought that mediation might solve it. It isn't that we had a lack of conflict in this country. Um, we didn't in 79, and unfortunately we don't today in 2014. So, I had to learn, and I had to learn, and it wasn't natural for me. I, I had to learn what people in business schools and in uh, small businesses had to learn. I had to learn how to set up an office. I had to learn how to talk to people when they were inquiring, how to have intake, how to work with clients not just at the very beginning, but all through to provide services 
in a way that they appreciated and that when the rubber hits the road, they're willing to pay for. Um, if it sounds like basic market economy, it is. And I find that uh, when people are satisfied with your service, they pay your bill, they refer others, and um, I um, uh, wanted other mediators to gain those skills. So I went and wrote a book. I'd written some articles before. I wrote a book called Mediation Career Guide. And um, I took my experience at the time of about 20 years in the field and applied it to um, uh, helping others conceptualize and have a, um, uh, a head start in being able to be profitable in their mediation practices. And there were certain things that I talked about um, that I found helpful and I saw helpful in all the mediators who seemed to um, be successful. Um, and uh, I can go through a few of them if you'd like or we'll go to another topic, Virginia. I'll leave it I- to you. I think it would be interesting to go through a few of those because you have named what is a huge problem for the profession of family mediators, which is that mediators are good at facilitating communication even in the presence of a lot of distrust and anger and conflict. But being good at mediating won't help you earn a living if you don't know something about how to run a business or have a staff that is running your business for you. So a few hints about, in my state, I got trained as a family mediator and I talked to the people who trained me and asked, how am I going to earn a living doing this? And they said, don't quit your day job. So, Give us some hints about a better answer for that question. Quit your day job. <laughs> that's what I that's did. My, that's my first hint. <laughs> um, and I, I'm not being facetious. Either it's your day job to be a mediator, peacemaker, or it's a avocation, it's a hobby. And hobbies are, and avocations are important. Part-time mediators... Volunteer mediators are um, a very important aspect to our justice systems. Um, community, community mediation programs, court mediation programs, um, low bono mediation provide tremendous services um, for people who either can't afford a different uh, kind of service or who don't want to pay more money. It's their money. They can choose how they want. Mm -hmm. But that's different than making your living through your peacemaking work. And to do that, um, uh, I I just went to some of the key business sources. um, And um, I found that uh, without question... Um, the, the writer after writer, expert after expert, basically says, 
you've got to be in it 100 or 200%. You have to dream it. You have to vision it. You have to hunger for it. And if you have that kind of commitment and passion, then you will do the things that are necessary to make a successful business of any sort, but certainly one in which it isn't a household name. Many people don't know the difference between medication, meditation, and mediation. So we have even a harder job. People know what dentists do. They know um, what muffler uh, repair shops do. But mediation is still um, uh, getting its sea legs when it comes to understanding. So it makes it even a harder sell. So here are some of the just basics, and you know we're not going to cover all of it now. One is to be clear what what your key core values are in your life and in your work. And be clear for yourself. Be able to communicate those to future potential clients. To gear everything in your practice around those values. To be what I call congruent about it and to live them out. So let me give you just a concrete example. Let's say a core value that you have is tolerance. So um, if, in fact, you as a mediator decide you only like to work when the parties are in the same room, those are called joint sessions. And another mediator or critic says really good mediators um, work in private sessions because that way they can be, they can work confidentially and the mediator can be more effective. A good mediator who has the value of tolerance would not be intolerant of that different view. You may not change your uh, your own uh, uh, your own method and your own model, but you'd want to listen more. You'd want to explore. You'd want to be a lifetime learner, and you'd want to do that with your clients who might who might ask questions. So, so why can't I meet with you separately? They might ask you, or. I don't, want to, I don't want to meet together. I can't stand her or him. So you're finding that your values are always being challenged. But if they're, if they're clear and they're deep, you can then offer the public a clear choice because that is what a consumer is looking for. They, they are hiring the mediator, the person, and training is important, and brilliance is important, but ultimately they're hiring character, and the characters come from values. So um, I could go on for a long time as to why this is important, and, um, and when I do um, uh, seminars, I often will spend a whole day on two things, life core values 
and best personal attributes. And it, those are the aspects that sell a mediator, not just to the parties, but to lawyers and to therapists and to other referral sources, and help establish the quality uh, around the table. So that's just one example. It's a good example. I have something else in mind or something that I would like to add to what you have said. Uh, You've been talking about some of the things that a person who wants to be a family mediator has to do in order to be able to earn a living doing it. One of the things that I like to remind people is that it is important for the good of society that some people can earn their livings as family mediators because if we can't earn a living doing this kind of work, a lot of us are going to give up and go do some other kind of work. And society, families, people need mediators to be available. Um, I actually agree with that, and I'm sorry, and I, I, I appreciate that you brought that up. I often raise that one myself, so I, um, I, I, like, I like what you just said, but, and I, I would like to add to it a bit. It takes years to be good in this profession. Um, it takes um, a tremendous investment of time and money to go to conferences and um, uh, to get uh, various types of trainings and to be able to take the time away from family and from our other earning opportunities to um, become competent. If that person, it's really what you're saying, can't make a living, and then she goes back to her job of origin, whether it being a teacher, insurance, salesperson, dentist, lawyer, the public suffers because the public loses that cumulative knowledge and uh, training. Um, and uh, we're only here for a pretty short time. So even if your career is, uh, you know, 30 or 40 years, that's a short time. And uh, some people don't start it until a second or third career. And then it's even shorter. <laughs> you know, they don't get into it until their, uh, their 40s or maybe even their 50s. Um, uh, on the other hand, Virginia, um, I'd like to talk about the youngest people going in. You may have heard me speak about this in uh, San Diego at that conference. I believe that our society is ageist, and so is our mediation profession. Um, and I would like to see younger people straight out of college and law schools uh, go into mediation make that their career from the beginning, and then after five years of struggle, they have a practice, and they can be doing it for the next 40 or 50 years. And um, I think that that, um, that, by the way, runs counter to many of my colleagues who say, oh, no, first you have to be a lawyer or a therapist or um, whatever it is, a long time, uh, a job that you may like but you may not like it as much as mediation. You may not like it at all. 
I believe you follow your heart, do what you like, you're going to make mistakes early. That's what the market is for. Younger, beginning mediators are going to make mistakes and they're going to not be able to have the higher hourly fees. That's fine. For people who can't afford it and who are underserved, that, that fits an economic model quite well. That makes sense to me. So we're going to go to a break pretty soon. Um, and maybe when we come back, we will talk about a couple of things. I, I want to hear more about the book that I know you're working on writing and that's going to be coming out soon. And maybe we'll talk a little about the reasons people do seek help from family mediators. Right now we have a break. Voice counts. Call toll free 1 866 472 5787. 1 866 472 5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Most adults are able to make good decisions about how their families can move forward. They do not need to rely on courts to make such decisions, especially in cases of divorce. Far too many people suffer unnecessary anguish because they do not know what family mediators can do. We help people discuss problems constructively in a private, confidential setting. We help them stop fighting and stay out of court. To learn more about mediation and other family matters, visit ColinFamilyMediationGroup.com. Colin has one L and no S. Are you struggling with emotional, financial, and legal stress related to divorce? The Guide to Low-Cost Divorce in Virginia by Virginia Collin and Rebecca Martin, teaches how to handle these processes in any state with special attention to Virginia's laws. This book can help you take care of yourself, get free legal advice, develop a good co-parenting plan, keep expenses down, and arrange a do-it-yourself divorce. The Guide to Low-Cost Divorce in Virginia is available from Amazon for just $4.99. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Family Matters. To reach Dr. Virginia Collin or today's guest, please call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to radio show at ColinFamilyMediationGroup.com. Now, back to Family Matters. Welcome back to Family Matters. This is Virginia Collin, and I'm talking today with Forrest Mostyn, Woody, of MostynMediation.com. We're talking about the profession of family mediation and its importance. And I'm going to switch gears abruptly because we have only this one segment of the show left, and I want to make sure that we get to talking about Woody's new book. So, Woody, you wrote The Complete Guide to Mediation in 1997. Well, it was published in 1997. And that 
was a resource for mediators who wanted to learn how they could get their careers started. You just told me recently that you're rewriting that book with help from a co-author. Would you like to say more about that? Um, uh, I would, because it's it's about to be born in April. Uh, The ABA uh, is putting out the second edition, but it's a very different book than the first edition. Um, In 1997, in many places, okay, I'm going to tell a story. Good. I have an imaginary friend. Um, and my imaginary friend is named Marion. Um, he, she is an androgynous um, uh, imaginary friend. And whenever I write, I write to Marion. I think, okay, if Marion is living in Arlington, Virginia, or in Tulsa, Oklahoma, or in Sarasota, Florida, or in Anchorage, Alaska, what would Marion think of the following? So I had a little talk with Marion <laughs> before I wrote the first book, and I found out that Marion had a peacemaker heart in an adversarial, conflictual world. Um, she or he really wanted to do things differently, but didn't get much support from uh, the lawyers and and other professionals, um, uh, from the courts, from the business community. And so Marion just had a little practice and was like a closet peacemaker, you know, didn't come out. So this, my book in 97 was to let Marion come out. (laughs) <laughs> to give Marion the thought, the thought that there were other Marions in every community, people who wanted to do mediation, but they needed some skills. They needed to know what, what services they could offer. They needed to know how to set up their office. They needed to know what mediation was all about. They needed to know some of the, the uh, uh, key uh mediation skills. They needed to know what was happening in the legal profession. Uh, needed to know law reform. It was a overall arching education for Marion. But from 1997 to 2012, when I started writing this book, mediation grew up and so did Marion. By the way, I never talked about it quite like this before. Uh, but you're easy to talk with, um, uh, Virginia. I, so, I like it so far. Um, so I asked Marion, so what now? And Marion says, I want to know, as a lawyer, how can I be effective around the mediation table? And as a mediator, how can I work with lawyers effectively? Since, since there's, a, there's a real truth, and that is many people won't mediate without lawyers. They're too scared. And then once lawyers take over, once lawyers are involved, they often take over. They change. They can change the mediation uh, dynamics and the key of having uh, parties talking directly with each other um, and having the mediator have that relationship. Now, it's 
it, it, it often becomes more like law and adversarial posturing. And even if it doesn't, there are real, there are real strategies and secrets for both mediators and lawyers on how to be effective. And part of that has come from the collaborative law movement, which has been, I think, one of the great um, uh, uh, variables in helping people uh, get a, a family matter resolved. And um, so... The, the, uh, let me interrupt you. Let really, me interrupt you for a second uh, because you just mentioned collaborative law and it's possible that some people in our audience are not acquainted with collaborative law. So it would be good to give an explanation of what that approach is. Okay. Well, for those people, fasten your seatbelts. I'm going to tell you something that you may not believe, but if you do a little Googling, you'll find that I'm actually telling you the truth. In collaborative law, the two lawyers and the parties sign a binding agreement that if either, either lawyer or either party files anything in court, both lawyers are fired. Those lawyers cannot represent those same people in court. So there is no incentive for the lawyers not to have a settlement because they get fired. And nobody likes getting fired. So um, collaborative law has become interdisciplinary with the use of therapists that's, um, uh, 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 that uh, play a major role as coaches and with fam- financial professionals. It's now in 25 countries, and there's an international group called IACP, International Academy of Collaborative Professionals, I am very much, um, and I, I practice collaborative law myself and find mm-hmm. it very exciting uh, in addition to my mediation practice. I've never believed that peacemaking requires neutrality. I believe you can be a peacemaker working for one side. And um, working for one side, though, in collaborative means working for the entire family system. Um, but all of the, of the lessons that come from my colleagues in the collaborative world, I um, believe can be uh, taught to professionals in mediation so that um, those professionals become uh, savvy in how to represent a client in mediation without blowing it up, without posturing. And I even have developed a situation where lawyers participate in the mediation, and if they sign an agreement, if the, if the mediation doesn't succeed, they're fired so that the people can get new, uh, the, um, new litigators. But, so, that, um, but that since um, a high percentage of these cases are going to settle, this is a wonderful way for parties in mediation to get support. And I think that is a key. It is very difficult if you are in a medical situation um, and you um, uh, try to self-medicate and you go against your doctor's orders. (laughs) 
it's it's not it's not smart. Get another doctor. Well, the same is true in mediation. Quite often, people say, "I like to mediate, but I want to have a very strong, um, heavy hitting litigator back me up." And it turns out that that heavy hitting litigator might be very smart in the law, but may not give the support to the party when they're doing something unorthodox. And um, that is not usual. So it's a, um, it's a, uh, this book is a wholly different look at how lawyers can play that role. And I'm hoping it makes a real sea change and um, allows lawyers to start referring even more to mediation. Sounds good. Sounds good. We have only a few minutes left. You and I have talked about so much. What would you most like to talk about in our last three or four minutes? I know you've, you really, you've said that... You really that, want me to tell you? Sure. I, I'd like to know who's out there. Who have, I been, who, who have I been speaking with for the last hour? What are they thinking? What questions do they have? Um, how could I have a conversation with them more? Um, that's what I'd like to know. Um, I'd like to know all of the people who are thinking about mediation as a career, why aren't they doing it? Why aren't, do they, um, how can I make it clearer and help them take the steps that are necessary for them to learn how to help so many people out there. That's what I'd like to know. Well, as to who's listening, it may take me a little while to find out. People can send me email messages at colinfamilymediationgroup.com. And so I can hear afterwards, and even when people download a podcast of this discussion, they can send me questions afterwards or tell me what they heard and what they wished we had talked about that we didn't get to. Um, so, but the so other part love, of what you're I'd saying, love to do, I, you know, I was just in Idaho <laughs> um, about about four weeks ago, uh, doing a um, a training for the uh, Idaho Mediation Association, and a similar question got asked for, toward the end of the training. And you know what I said? I yep. said, "I'm looking around. I've had such a great weekend with all of you. I'd like to visit every one of you in your homes." And a good dinner. I love I love dinner. I love to be able to come to people's homes and, and bring a nice bottle of wine and, and sit around and have, have dinner with them. And I got so many invitations. Uh, well, my wife and I are going to head back to Idaho soon um, uh, and go around the state and visit some people. Um, so there are other ways to do that. Uh, Skype is a good way. Um, uh, I can work with mediation organizations and individuals and and sometimes I, you know, you have private lessons and sometimes you have um, semi-private and people can uh, uh, contract with me over Skype or the phone for us to have conversation so that I could help them. I, I love doing that. And that's a tremendously valuable service that you are providing. What you're really doing is mentoring the next generation of family mediators. And we need you for that. Well, when you're... When you're Medicare age, you uh, 
you want to be able to do that uh, because uh, we want we want uh, the next generation to uh, build on our shoulders. That's true. I will take this opportunity to mention that the Academy of Professional Family Mediators exists for this very reason, to to so that senior, experienced mediators can teach younger people how to be good family mediators. And I'm afraid we're about out of time. So I'll remind everybody, you can find out more about Woody by going to mostonmediation.com. You can also check a bookstore. He has written a lot of great books. Thank you for joining us this week on Family Matters. Please tune in for another edition featuring host Dr. Virginia Collin next Tuesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Be kind, heal, and grow. Be kind, heal, and grow.